0: Well, it's an honor and privilege uh, to be here with you at Redeemer, and certainly a privilege to be able to open the Scriptures and and preach the Gospel here to to my friends. And uh, it's a special privilege because I am going to preach from a passage that is one of my favorites, and I'm very excited about sharing with you. Um, In particular, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, you can open and take a look at that or follow along in the bulletin. I love that section of Scripture because you have Jesus talking to two very different types of people. I wonder if you've ever caught this before. He talks to a man in one chapter, and then he talks to a woman. He talks to someone who's powerful in their community, full of influence and kind of a mover and a shaker, and then someone who is powerless and is often looked past. He talks to someone who's religious, and then he talks to someone who's completely not religious. He talks to someone who's morally pure, and then someone who's morally compromised. He talks to someone who's very, very, very wealthy, and then someone who's very, very poor. Someone who's very educated, and then one chapter over, someone who is not educated at all. One person seeks after Jesus and is curious, and the other person, Jesus, seeks after that person. One person seeks Jesus at night and the other person Jesus pursues at high noon in the middle of the day. Two people with absolutely nothing in common. You could not get two more contrasting images and types of people than Nicodemus and the woman in John chapter 4. They have nothing in common, yet one person changes their lives. I wonder if that might help us provide some context. As we're coming into worship this morning, wherever you are, whatever your story is, whatever uh, sort of brought you into worship this morning, whether you were excited, you are enthusiastic, or, or you're just struggling, Jesus can meet you exactly where you are. How might this interaction that we're going to have, knowing that Jesus meets all of us where we are, shape how we think about entering and even seeing the kingdom of God. Now, if you haven't been to Redeemer, if it's been a while since you've been to Redeemer, all summer we've been looking at this topic of what is the kingdom of God? And it's important to remember, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and the Christian church is talking about the kingdom of God, we're not talking about a physical kingdom like the United Kingdom of England. We don't look for Christians to take over a certain a particular area of the world right now and sort of take things by force. Unfortunately, we can look at history and see that's how people have interpreted the Bible. But we realize that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We've also learned this summer that the kingdom is already, but not yet. Jesus is the king. He's reigning and ruling right now. He's present with us. And yet we're still waiting a fuller expression of that reign, even as we're waiting for his second coming in the new heavens and the new earth. We've also learned that humility and weakness and dependency, things that are utterly un-American, there's nothing American about that, are the very aspects and the values that Jesus has for his followers to live in his kingdom. That's what we learned last week from Rob's sermon. But that leaves us with an important question. How? How do we enter in, how do we see the kingdom of God? I think John chapter three will help us and give us some great insights. So with that, let's turn our reverent attention to God's word, John chapter three, verses one through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we come into Your presence and we ask that You would send Your Spirit. We cannot know the things from Your Scriptures. We cannot know Your ways and Your words and the life that You value the priorities that you desire all of us to have by being smart enough or savvy enough. We need your Holy Spirit. We are completely dependent on the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and open our minds and concentrate and to consider who Jesus is and to consider a life in the kingdom of God, and investing all of our time and our money and our abilities in that kingdom, we, we will not see that unless your Holy Spirit opens our hearts. We I ask that you would send the Spirit even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I recently turned 40, and a number of my friends uh, took me on a trip to Chicago for my 40th birthday. And one of my friends is really thoughtful and he said, I've got this very special uh, location that we're going to go to that's just perfect for your birthday. And so we piled into the Uber and it was a night just like last night. The, the rain was coming down. Uh, we, we wondered if the Uber driver could actually see where he was going on the roads. And, and he drives us to this sort of random part of Chicago and he lets us off and he said, guys, are you sure this is the place? And we look around and all we saw was, was a wall, a brick wall that was just covered with this beautiful mural. And Colin said, this is the place. So we hop out of the car and I said, this is the place that you wanted to take me for my birthday, this special occasion, this special place that has incredible drinks and, 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 and cocktails. And I, he said, yes, because do you see it? I said, no, I see a big wall. And Colin walks up to the wall, and as you get closer, there's a door. There's a hidden door right in the wall. I was right there, and I didn't see it. Hundreds of people walk past that mural every single day, and they don't see anything. But Colin had the eyes to see it. We opened the door. There was a whole world of wonder and joy and celebration, and it was the perfect thing for my 40th birthday. Tonight, or actually, I'm so used to saying tonight with RUF. This morning, as we're looking at our passage in John chapter 3, we're looking at someone, Nicodemus, who thought he could see the door. He thought he was close. Kids, you guys know what Marco Polo is like, right? You know, the classic pool game, you know, where um, someone says Marco and the other person says Polo. and and the one person is trying to touch the other person. And sometimes you can say, am I close? And you say, you're cold, you're cold. Or if you're really close to the person, you're hot, you're on fire. You're about... This guy, Nicodemus, thought he was on fire. Thought he was super close to the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, nope, you can't even see the door. I wonder, for those of us here this morning... I wonder for where we are this morning, someone who comes to Jesus, he's intrigued, he's curious, he knows a lot about the Bible, and yet Jesus says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. I wonder if those of us here today can resonate with Nicodemus' story. And ultimately, I hope that we will be encouraged by Nicodemus' story. Because this passage and Nicodemus' life threaded throughout John's gospel helps us understand how to see and enter into the kingdom of God. So I've got a few questions I want us to ask from our passage. Who enters the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? And how do we enter? The who, the what, and the how of entering the kingdom of God. So let's talk a little bit about who enters the kingdom of God. Look at verses 1 to 2. What do we learn about Nicodemus? These details matter. He was a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the most distinguished, the most highly respected, the most morally upright people in Jerusalem. It wasn't just that he knew the Bible and he was an Old Testament teacher and scholar, his life was pristine to people on the outside. I mean, he was very moral, he was very upright. And notice he also is a ruler of the Jews. That phrase is also important. We find out later he's a member of what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling body, in this case, of Jerusalem. He had tremendous influence and sway in his community. He was revered and respected. People would come to him for advice. He was learned. He was well-liked. This is the kind of guy that you want leading your community group. This is the kind of guy that you would expect to be up here preaching on a Sunday morning. He not only knew a lot of knowledge, but he also walked the talk. What else do we learn about Nicodemus? We also learn that he was a Bible scholar. We also realize that he's intrigued by Jesus. The text doesn't specifically answer why it is that Jesus came at night. But for whatever reason, he probably didn't want people to find out. He was curious. But also notice he didn't ask any questions. He's different than the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks questions. Nicodemus says, I know that you're a teacher from God because I saw you do some incredible signs, probably referring to when Jesus was driving out the money changers one chapter earlier. That's the kind of person that Nicodemus is. This is the guy that we would look at. We say, this guy is so close. Marco Polo, you're hot. You're hot. You're right there. Is he close? Jesus has the guts to tell this person, you can't even see the door. You can't even see the kingdom of God. He says in verse 3, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born above or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This is the guy that all of us would say would have the inside track. We're not living in in exactly the kind of religious culture that Jesus and Nicodemus would have been living in. In that time, being moral and being uh, a man of influence in a patriarchal society was seen as a very high thing. And everyone looks at this person as an example. But the point is, who are the people that we look to in our culture today, in our American, individualistic, tolerant culture, and say, surely this guy's got it made? Who are the Nicodemuses in our culture, who are perfectly balanced, not too extreme, Not too much of a Jesus freak. Who are those people that we look to and we assume those guys are so close or those guys are in and that we need to see Jesus turning the table, flipping the script and saying, that person, if he is trusting in his own abilities, his own insights, his own background, he can't even see the kingdom. She can't even see the kingdom. I think there's an application for us. (laughs) Look at your life. Look at your life. How is the gospel an attack on your assumed qualifications before Jesus? What are the things that you want to hold on to and you want to say, I'm better than that person or I'm closer to God. I'm more valuable because I have more influence in my community because I'm well-educated because I have means, because I have a seminary degree, because I'm an elder, because I'm a community group leader, because you name it. These are all wonderful things, but just like Nicodemus, those are things that we think we can qualify ourselves before Jesus. And Jesus knows our hearts just like he knows and knew Nicodemus's heart. I think that's a challenge for us. But I think there's also something instructive that I love seeing Um, in this interaction and who Jesus moves toward, Jesus makes time in His schedule for drop-ins. Nicodemus just dropped by his house one night while Jesus happened to be in Jerusalem. And I think this is a direct attack against our American individualism and our preoccupation with efficiency, And I just wonder if there's something instructive for us as we're thinking about being a church, longing for people to enter the kingdom of God. Do you have enough bandwidth in your life where you allow people to drop in and inconvenience your schedule? Do you have an open and outward face toward the people in your neighborhood, the the people in your offices? Jesus has much to teach us that he makes time for people. Because it takes time, as we're going to see, to enter the kingdom of God. So I want you to notice who Jesus moves toward and who enters the kingdom of God. It's the person who must take Jesus on his own terms. He's not just a teacher. He's so much more, which we're going to find out. That's great. But what does it actually mean to enter the kingdom of God? Well, that's answered in verses 3 to 6. These are pretty familiar verses. I'm going to read them again. Verse 3. What is entering the kingdom of God like? Of all the images that Jesus could have chosen to use with Nicodemus, and he uses a lot of different things. Remember in chapter 4, what's the illustration that he uses? Thirst. Remember the woman is at a well, and Jesus like, thinks on his feet, I'm at a well, I bet she has some thirsts. Here, Jesus uses the image of a labor and delivery room. Giving birth. Of new life. Jesus wants us to understand that entering into the kingdom of God is a new life. Now, I know not all of you have been there, but I have witnessed the birth of two out of the three of my children. And don't worry, I'm not gonna go into details. But I'll just say this when I was in that labor and delivery room, it was loud, it was crazy, I felt out of control. It was messy. I felt a yoke of responsibility. I I mean, it was a mixture of emotions. Moms, dads, do you remember what that was like? This sense of there's a new life coming. And that new life is like going to live at my house. And I've got to feed that new life. And there's responsibility. And I can't stop this thing from coming. It's coming right now. All of that that sort of pantheon of images and emotions and feelings that we have and experience. The reality of new life is what Jesus wants us to understand about what it's like to enter the kingdom of God. It's messy. You're out of control. You are completely dependent on someone else. You can't manage it. You can't control it. New life. Now, it's interesting, Jesus uses two different phrases to to capture this same idea. He says, born from above. And then he also says, born of water and the Spirit. Some of my other friends from other denominations would want to look at this and say, ah, see, this is talking about the necessity of baptism to become a Christian. It says, water and the Spirit. Here's why I don't think that's accurate. Baptism has not been inaugurated yet. Yes, Jesus was baptized and set apart as the Messiah to fulfill all righteousness, but baptism had not yet been instituted. We don't see that till later on until Jesus calls his disciples to go out into the, to the entire earth teaching and baptizing and making disciples. I think it's more consistent for us to tie in this idea of water, in the Spirit with Ezekiel 36, which is the passage that Matt seipel read earlier, talking about this promise and this pledge that when the Messiah comes, He will bring new birth and new life. This is not like a club that you can sign up for to be a Christian. The old you is completely gone, and there's a new you that is entering into this world. Think about the other passages of Scripture that might come to mind. Earlier in John, in uh, chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. Even 1 Corinthians 2.14 lets us know the dire condition of all of humanity apart from this new life. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. We need new life. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. He knew the Bible. He was moral. And yet he had not received new life. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in his classic work, Mere Christianity, about the necessity and the need for this new life. Christ says, it's on the bulletin, by the way. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked. The whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. What does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus gives this illustration of new life, of new birth, birth from above. Do you see yourself this morning as a follower of Jesus as completely helpless, completely hopeless, utterly weak, unless God does something in your life? Friends, that is the nature of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. My friends here this morning who are considering Jesus sort of like Nicodemus was I want to be honest with you. Until you are at a place where you are saying, I am weak, I am hopeless, I am helpless, I have nowhere to run, no more crutches to lean on, my money, my business, my family name, my religious conduct, until you are at the end of all of those ropes, Jesus will be nothing more than a teacher for you. Jesus will be a nice addition, a nice window treatment to your life. But like C.S. Lewis says, Jesus came to kill the natural self and to make us alive, to actually see the world with new eyes and new hope and new joy. But I think there's also another example of something instructive about Jesus's movement toward Nicodemus. Nicodemus met, or excuse me, Jesus met Nicodemus where he was. He used a story, he used a biblical reference that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. Just like in the first point, Jesus had bandwidth and time in his schedule for people. When Jesus actually met with that person, he actually met that person using language and illustrations and knowledge that would have been very familiar to that person. I wonder if there's something for us as we're working with our own children As as you're getting to know friends of yours that don't know Jesus or maybe don't have any knowledge of the Bible or do have a knowledge of the Bible, are we able to contextualize and communicate the gospel clearly in an intriguing and and, um, provocative way and faithful to the Scriptures, knowing our audience inside and out? Do we know how to do that? So we notice who Jesus moves toward. We know also what it is about entering the kingdom of God. But how do we enter? I mean, here's another question. Did you give birth to yourself? I'm not trying to be snarky, but we didn't birth ourselves. Someone else had to carry us. We are completely passive. There's nothing that we can do to commend ourselves. We did not contribute. I did not contribute anything to my birth except a whole lot of pain for my mother. We didn't contribute anything. And if that doesn't offend you at some level, I'm afraid that you're not hearing Jesus's words clearly. Because Nicodemus would have been offended. All of us bear the image of God. All of us do amazing things potentially in our community, in our families. And because we bear his image, we care about the poor and, and desire to serve others. But at the end of the day, none of that can commend us to God. And the story of Nicodemus helps us see that so clearly. So what do we do then? Jesus closes his conversation with Nicodemus with this an amazing illustration An illustration, frankly, that I had to look up because it's an obscure story in the Old Testament from Numbers 21. Numbers 21, it's a story about Moses and the people of God wandering around in the wilderness. See, at this particular time, the people of God had been rescued, and now they were grumbling again to God, and they were complaining And there was ingratitude, and they were like, God, why would you take us out here so that we could die? You don't really care about us, you don't really trust us. And so, you know what God does? He judges his people. He sends judgment into the camp in a very violent way. He sends the judgment of snakes into the camp. And God's people are being bit by snakes. And they're dying. And they're crying out in distress. And there's nothing that they can do to fix themselves. There's nothing that they can do to cure themselves. What are they going to do? God instructs Moses to raise up a golden snake. A golden serpent. And Moses raises it up and says, if you just look To this golden serpent you will live. Yes, God has sent His judgment appropriately because we have rebelled and we have grumbled and we deserve it. But God has also met us with His grace. And if you, you don't have to crawl, you don't have to walk You don't have to do anything other than just lift your gaze to the hill to see the golden serpent raised. Then you will live. Of all the stories, Jesus says, Nicodemus, man of God's Word, just like when Moses raised up that golden serpent, that bronze serpent in the wilderness, and the people lived. The judgment of God is now upon all of us. But there will come a time when just like that bronze serpent, the son of man will be lifted up. And all who look to him in faith will be cured and will be healed and will be saved. And what happens? We don't know. We don't know what how Nicodemus immediately responds, but he must have connected the dots. All those who look to the Son of Man will be healed. Jesus is saying that that serpent from Numbers 21 is a sign pointing to the cross of Jesus. But it's only when we realize that we are dying and that we have no spiritual life and we have nowhere to turn that we will fix our gaze in the words of the, the song that we just sang earlier. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through Him alone. Are you looking to the Son of Man who was lifted up? Jesus did not come for the healthy, but He came for the sick. We learn who must enter the kingdom of God. We learn what the kingdom of God and that entering looks like. We learn how by simply looking up to the Son of Man. But I also want us to sort of close with this idea. I want you to consider the process of entering the kingdom of God. Because we don't know what happens to Nicodemus. In John 3, he hears, he hears the amazing words, For God so loved the world. John three sixteen. And he scurries off into the night. And we don't hear. Did he get it? Did he connect the dots with the, the bronze serpent and the cross of Christ? You know, we see Nicodemus again in John chapter 7. And this time he's with his Sanhedrin, the, uh, the Jewish rulers of his day. And they're all giving Jesus a hard time. And they... <coughs> here are the words right here in John seven forty seven. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Jesus? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, that is the Sanhedrin, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And then they mock Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee too, Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Do you see how amazing that is? There's a process to entering the kingdom of God. Coming to Jesus in the private and cloaked and shrouded in the night is now moving toward a more public faith where even amongst the Sanhedrin, he's willing to say, hey, let's hear Jesus out. But there's also more to this process. You know, we see Nicodemus again at the very end of John's Gospel, in John 19. In John 19, this is what we read in verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away Jesus' body, from the cross, of course. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Where are the disciples? Where's Jesus' mother? The two people are members of the Sanhedrin. Those are the ones that are going public with tremendous cost and moving toward Jesus, paying for the tomb, paying for 75 pounds of burial spices. I learned that if you were a normal Joe like any of us, you're doing good if someone's willing to spend one pound of burial spices on your body. If you're a a well-known philosopher or teacher or rabbi, you're looking at maybe 40 pounds. 75 pounds is what Nicodemus provides for his Lord and his Savior and his King. What would cause Nicodemus to be so generous to be so over the top, to be so lavish, to bring his faith out of darkness and into the light, to publicly align himself with Jesus, to even be rejected by the Sanhedrin, and to spend all this money on Jesus. what had gotten a hold of him? Why would he do this? Remember that Numbers 21 illustration. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. At the cross, Nicodemus saw the Son of Man lifted up, and it all clicked. Oh, the judgment of God should have fallen on me. I deserve the judgment of God. And instead, it's falling on the Son of Man. And now I receive life and healing just like those people in Numbers 21 receive life and healing by simply looking to the serpent. You see, Nicodemus saw a new king, he saw a new kingdom. Not a kingdom that was on earth, that was involving the Jews, taking Israel over again and kicking out the infidels and getting rid of all the Gentiles, which was the expectation. But a kingdom of grace and forgiveness and new life and joy and radical generosity that the world would look at and say, how can you spend 75 pounds on this obscure Jewish rabbi from backwater Nazareth, from Galilee. Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? Nicodemus had met, had seen and entered the kingdom of God. A couple of years ago, I had a chance to bring our college students, our RUF group to Athens, Greece on our mission trip. And at the end of the week, or at the beginning of the week, we always like to go to the Acropolis, which is very windy. Um, And that's where the Parthenon is and all these beautiful Greek ruins. I'm sure you've seen pictures. And we love to stand up there (coughs) because you get beautiful views of the city. But the problem is, it is very, very windy and I wish that I could put, put the picture up to show this to you, but our entire team is standing up and we're smiling, and you basically can't see anyone's faces because if, if the girl next to you, if her hair is not covering her face, then it's blowing this way and covering the face of the person next to you. And it was just so intense. You didn't know where the wind was coming from, but you clearly could see the results. How do you know if you have entered into the kingdom of God like Nicodemus? Let me ask you another question. When the Holy Spirit has blown through your life, giving you new life, has it ever messed up your hair? I mean, has it really changed your life? And how you view your marriage and your kids and your family and your community. Because Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, You're a teacher of the law. You should get this. But just like you can't control the wind, you can't control me. But you know that the wind has affected something when you see the results. Are you willing this morning... To be honest and say, Justin, I feel like I'm Nicodemus. I know the story. I'm I'm Mr. PCA or Mrs. PCA person. But honestly, to use your metaphor, I don't know that, that the wind has really blown my hair back very much as it relates to the gospel. Are you willing to acknowledge maybe this morning might be the day that you enter the kingdom of God? That like Nicodemus, you have all the learning, but you couldn't find the door. You know that you have been changed when the Holy Spirit begins to change how we see our family, our money, our time. How do you get a hold of this? Just like Nicodemus, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through Him alone. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You That entering the kingdom of God is something that is dramatic, is something that is extreme, it is something that is brand new, and it is what we were made for. Lord, I pray that all of us would see our utter helplessness and hopelessness apart from Jesus. And that for those of us that say, yes, I love Jesus, I want to follow him, but I struggle, I pray that we would look at the Nicodemus example and in so many ways recommit our allegiance to King Jesus this morning and say, yes, I have been investing my time and my money in a kingdom that is fading. And this morning I see through the radical generosity of Nicodemus and a changed life that I'm going to invest in the kingdom that will never fail.